Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with psychic medium Stephanie Burke. And we are here to talk about the paranormal as we are each and every Saturday night. And uh, just going to press some buttons, extra buttons here. All kinds of extra buttons to press. Because we are streaming live on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. We, uh, we have the Red Sox airing on WBSM tonight. So we are YouTube only, Spooky TV only. Which means things can get really weird, but we're going to try and keep it as, I don't know, I don't know if respectful is the word tonight, considering like the topic that we'll be talking about, but we're going to be considerate of the fact of what we'll be talking about, because joining us a little bit later on in the program, we will have Katie and Kirby from the Killer Babes podcast. We're going to be talking about, well, true crime, murders, all that kind of stuff. And sometimes when you talk about those things on the radio, especially if you're talking about because, you know, we'll we'll definitely be talking Lizzie Borden with them because that was the season finale of their show. And tomorrow is the anniversary of the Borden murders. But sometimes when you talk about some of these true crime topics and you're on the radio, it can get a little dicey because you'd never know if the family members are listening and... You know, sometimes they don't like you talking about something if it's still pretty fresh and they consider it disrespectful. They consider it exploitative and or exploitative, however you want to say it. And they look at it as, you know, you're just trying to use our family's tragedy as radio fodder. You know, it's something that when we talk about the New Bedford Highway murders, we always have to be cognizant of because... I know for a fact that there's people... Well, that also hits really close to home, too, right. because we're right here in New Bedford. That's something that happened in my hometown, and we still hear about it today. And, yeah, and there's listeners to this program right. who are fans of the show or listeners of the show who their their family members were directly affected by that. So, you know, we try and tread lightly when we talk about that, but it's even that is something that we're talking about 30 years ago now. So when 30 years passes... I know it doesn't get easier, but at least there's some time and time can help at least uh, being able to step back and look at some of that from a, a more objective standpoint. Right. I mean, it's always going to be a subjective experience. You're always going to feel that pain, but at least you can listen to a radio show about it and feel like you can distance yourself a little bit. So that you can hear what, what it is they have to say. Of course. But at the same time, hopefully that the people that are on the radio are doing it correctly and you're giving those families a voice that they didn't have 30 years ago because nobody would listen to them. Or at the same time, somebody's looking at this under a different lens now than what they would have 30 years ago. So it might be comforting in a way if it's done correctly. The other problem, though, is that when you do talk about things that are relatively fresh, sometimes cases are still open. Yes. And, you know, there's things that we may be privy to knowing that maybe hasn't gotten out into the public, whether it be through talking to family, Mm -hmm. talking to law enforcement. Uh, There's also things that, you know, are speculative and that may be something that is in the discussion around something but isn't, you know, formally proven. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you get into a lot of dicey things that way, too. So, generally, you know, we've tried to... I don't want to say shy away from true crime here on the show, but I'm just going to lay it out out there. I'm scared 
to talk about some of the cases that are out there in this area mm-hmm. because some of them involve a supposedly active satanic cult mm-hmm. who is um let's just say that they are known to not take things quietly right they don't just let people talk about certain things and let it go so we started in the very early days of this show we would kind of touch upon some of that and we would we would hear things right we would uh we would i remember one night going home and you know feeling like somebody was uh was watching me at you know one or two in the morning whatever time it was outside my house and uh i think matt costa had mentioned you know having somebody outside of his house when he got home one night and you know i I don't want to say that that we're important enough that they would care about us but at the same time they it happened in this area right and we're on the airwaves in this area so it's understandable why you know we might be i think that was before they might try to intimidate us yeah yeah well because we we stopped talking about it long before you came on board and plus you know there's there's no real information new information to present Mm -hmm. so it was it would have just been rehashing the stories now our guests later on that's what they do is they bring these stories back to light and they try to give all the information that they can uh but maybe some of these things are i mean maybe they're worth a a visit because you know i was i was worried then Mm -hmm. because my son was young and we had there was uh incidents where we would go out to different things and people would would talk about my son because you know i was doing restaurant reviews for the newspaper and i would mention him and I, it got really weird where I felt like too many people were coming up to me and being way too familiar right. with my family. And so we, we kind of kept that distance. But now, you know, years have passed. It's easier to handle now. So uh, plus, you know, my, my son is now 15 years old and taller than I am. So, you right. know, if anybody tried to mess with him, I'm pretty sure, you know, nobody's I don't think anybody's grabbing him, throwing him in a van. You know, he's, he's, he's bigger and stronger than I am, so... Yeah, I mean, I have a problem with that, too. I just think that kids should be left out of everything, right. always. I don't think kids should ever be on the table with anything, no matter what. And, I mean, you, you know, you have a child, but you right. keep your child out of the spotlight. Right. Um, you, you weren't writing restaurant reviews and <laughs> discussing your child, but nope. but still, it's a concern. You know, when you talk about some of these things, you never know. You never know where, where it could go. And, and And I'm not saying that, you know, I'm thinking that the... You know, the satanic cult is going to come and kidnap my son. Right. But I'm just saying, all it takes is one person going up to him and saying, oh, hey, tell your dad to stop talking about whatever. Right. And that might freak them, freak him out enough, mm-hmm. you know, and that's unnecessary and not something worth uh, putting at risk. So we felt like we didn't need to cover some of these stories. But now, you know, time has passed. As long as we cover it in the right way, I think. Right. You know, we're not trying to get to the bottom of the... We're no. not trying to blow just, open the cult and we're just retelling expose the it to story. everybody. Right. We just want Which people to understand. the exact same thing that's been in the news. It's nothing new, um, you know, covered by newspapers or anything like that. But I think the, the fascinating part is 30 years later, looking into the religion of what Satanists believe in, are the two really alike? Satanists and and who and the satanic cults that you're talking. Oh, you're about. talking about like are they true Satanists? Mm-hmm. Um, it depends on. So there's layers to this. Correct. The the crimes that we know of and the people who perpetrated the crimes that we know of, from everything that's been under you know been explained to us by our law enforcement sources over the years, is that we just know about the very low level. 
mm-hmm. but that in this area, and it doesn't it doesn't have to necessarily be a satanic cult. I think people have just referred to I it think as that. So, yeah. But there's been no real evidence at the higher levels of it being anything satanic, but there being some sort of um, some sort of organization, we'll call it. Yeah, I mean, I think people just put satanic in front of it because they think that that's the worst thing that you could possibly call it. But well, if you go to the satanic temple in like Salem, Massachusetts or anywhere around the country, they don't do what this group has done. But some of the stuff that was done when it was done and then which was the the late 70s, early 80s for most of this stuff and some of the signs that are still out there like in the Freetown State Forest now do point to supposed satanic cults, but... Or is it just really uneducated people using symbolism that they think or would is go it, along with Or that? is it window dressing to make people think that it's something right. that's satanic? So that's why there's, you know, I, I think a lot of the people that we've talked to in law enforcement have said, we don't really put a lot of stock in the idea of them being... I would just hate Satanists like, to get a bad name because Satanists. of it. Satanists. You know? Right. Well, Call I them think what they are. There's a difference between a Satanist and a satanic cult anyway. Yeah. In general. Right. Like a, a Satanist is somebody that belongs to the Church of Satan and there actually is a, I guess, a code, you would say, that would prevent them from doing the kind of things that supposed satanic cults do. We're mm-hmm. talking about, when we say satanic cults, I, I'm referring to like the teenagers in the 70s and 80s that were listening to the heavy metal records backwards right. and then going out and sacrificing animals in the woods. Right. So, or just drawing six 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 everywhere because they thought that that was going to get attention. Some of the thinking in the early days was that they had, you know, those type of people had graduated to committing these murders. Mm-hmm. But some of the stuff that we've heard from from the the higher ups is that instead that was just kind of masking the work of this Group. I don't know this, this dark organization, mm-hmm. uh, which is supposedly still active today. And has people that are in high positions within it. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. That's kind of why we've shied away from some of these things that we've talked about. Uh, some of it is because we've been asked not to talk about certain cases. Right. Uh, and then some of it is because it's still active and uh, and we don't want to get in the way of that. Now, we've had you know multiple shows on, on the highway murders and we will have more because right. the, you know, the... Uh, the documentary will be coming out eventually. Mm-hmm. Aaron's just getting ready to work on the final part of it now. And then when that comes out, there'll be more talk about that. So that'll definitely be on the table. But I, you know, I don't know how much we need to get into a lot of the true crime of the area. For, you know, for example, there's um there's some documentaries in the works. I can't really mm-hmm. say what I know, but there's some documentaries in the works of some other criminal things that have happened in this area. Right. And uh, you know, we've we just had um, Netflix just did a show about uh, the Codfather. For those of you who are unfamiliar, there is a a man in who lives in New Bedford. Well, lives in Dartmouth, but uh, owns fishing boats in New Bedford. His name's Carlos Rafael, and and he referred to himself as the Codfather mm-hmm. because he basically ran fishing out of the port of New Bedford, which is the number one fishing port in the world. So that gives you, well, in the country at least, so that gives you an idea of the kind of power this guy wielded. And mm-hmm. uh, and there's quotas and, and limits on how much people can catch for ground fish because they want to make sure that they keep the population regenerating over the years. Uh, the, the area had been so overfished that they had to help work to bring it back and, and make it sustainable again. And so he was actually getting around those limits and 
catching more than he was allowed to, and then he was selling them for cash in New York City, the fish that he caught, and not reporting that money to the government, so he wasn't paying taxes on it. And then on top of that, he had a law enforcement agent who was helping him sneak that money out of the country to Portugal to a bank account there. So mm-hmm. there's this whole thing that's been going on with that, and Netflix focused on it, and I think there's another another network that was working on a special about it as well. You know, that's true crime. You're not going to hear us talk about that here on Spooky South Coast because it doesn't really fit into what we do, but that's just, you know, one of the things that people are focusing on in this area. You know, the highway murders, I feel like they kind of fit into what we do a little bit because they're unsolved, uh, because, again, as I mentioned, we know so many people that were affected by it. Right. And also, you know, that connection is kind of there because we're friends with Aaron, who's right. working on on this multi-part documentary about it, too. So that kind of just blends itself into what we do anyway. But a lot of the stuff that we could cover, you know, we could talk about some of the other things that have gone on in this area. We could talk about some of the cult crimes. We could talk about right. the Mary Lou Arruda case. We could talk about the Big Dance rape case. We could talk There's about so all many. these things that have gone on. Uh, even some of the more recent ones. I mean, we've had we've had two incidents of violence in bars over the last twenty years or so, fifteen years or so. We had the Puzzles Lounge murders, uh, and we had um, well stabbings, and then we had the the um, the Foxy Lady murders. I was gonna say we've had place, so so much that it's it's almost ridiculous how many people have been killed in this area for odd things like that it's not every day that you see um okay people get killed all over the world everywhere every day but for the reasons why all of these have happened it makes you wonder um if they're all not connected in a strange way well and then of course today you know we have even here as we speak you know we're we're getting all the information about a tragedy that happened today and just another one that happened last week so it just it it keeps going and it keeps going, but there's a difference I think between what's going on now and some of these crimes that we've had in this area over the you know over the past thirty forty years. So I think that there's I don't I don't want to say it's different motives because again we don't really know necessarily all the motives of what's going on in these more modern cases, but there's certainly. Uh, there's a, things are a lot more politically motivated, we'll say. Right. And um, just more about human interaction with one another. Whereas the, the stuff that we're talking about is more a matter of sickness. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to say that, though, because you, you know, really these, know these people that are committing these crimes now are, are probably sick, too. But it was, it, was, it was different. Or even we had the, the people responsible for the Boston Marathon bombings plan that out here. Mm-hmm. They bought the ingredients for their bomb here. You know, all these things are not your everyday crimes. Right. The, uh, the you know, I'm walking by one of the bombers the next day after it happened, literally walking right past my family mm-hmm. as we were walking into the UMass Dartmouth pool. I mean, yep. you get you get this stuff right in your face. Right. Uh, but... I don't know. At least today we can kind of take comfort for an odd choice of words in the fact that we're going to be talking mostly about a murder that happened 127 years ago. Right. So here we are on the eve of the Lizzie Borden murders. 
And uh, August 4th, 1892 was the date. It's always a, a, a time around this area where, yeah, people come and, you know, they get all excited to learn about the Lizzie Borden murders and, and, and to talk about that and to try to solve the unsolvable. Mm-hmm. But in the end, too, it's also, it's it's a unique time for us here in this area to get some attention for this area because it, it seems like every, you know, every year the observance of the anniversary gets bigger and bigger in Fall River. More stuff goes on. Mm-hmm. The Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast went from having one reenactment to having multiple reenactments on the anniversary right. to now having multiple reenactments throughout the weekend. You know, people want to come and, and learn about this case, and it usually ties into um, the the Feast of the Blessed Sacrament here in New Bedford, which is the biggest event in New Bedford all year. It's the biggest Portuguese feast in the world. So you've got all of this stuff going on and people coming to this area. So it it does give us a good spotlight. It's a weird spotlight to have to have for Fall River to say, you know, people are coming from all over the world to learn about these murders that happened here. Right. And what's funny is, and we can get into this in a little bit with our guests, but what's funny is on the surface... The story shouldn't be as big as it is still today. You know what I mean? Like, we've had so many more things that have happened over the years that are more, I, I, I mean, maybe interesting. Or maybe, you know, you you kind of just have to accept that these board murders are never going to be solved. Mm-hmm. Partially because of the way forensics was in those right. days. Everything's lost. And also, you know, there's, there's uh, you know, inquest testimony that people is people are never going to see because it's locked away in a lawyer's vault in Springfield, and they've said they're never going to release it. Mm-hmm. And that's literally the only piece that we know of that's left over from that crime that could mm-hmm. shed any kind of light on anything, but we're never going to see it. Well, why not? Because they will never release it. Uh, apparently, attorney-client privilege continues even in death. Really? So they will not release that information. Hmm. because I've reached out to them and I've asked if there's ever any plans. Right. And that was the the direct response I got was attorney-client privilege goes on and we would not be releasing those documents. It wasn't even their client. Right. It's just they inherited it because of the the chain of custody of those documents. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whoever the lawyer was joined in a partnership with another lawyer, and then that lawyer was part of a partnership with these lawyers. So it's it, it, it came to be in their possession, and, and they just won't release it. But everything will run out eventually. But what we have been told, myself and other people that have inquired about it, is there's nothing new in there anyway, mm-hmm. is what they've told us. So, but it's kind of like, you know, the, the JFK documents. Mm-hmm. They told us for years there's nothing really in them, but you can't see them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, eventually we'll see them all and then we'll be able to see if that was right. the truth or not. But that's what I find to be interesting is that there's other cases that could be taking people's attention. If people want to try to solve a, a crime or, or whatever it is that draws them to the board and story. Mm-hmm. But instead, they're still drawn to what really was a huge thing. When it happened in 1892, but mm-hmm. now we're kind of like, you know, that kind of pales in comparison to some of the other things that have gone on, right. which is, you know, a sad thing to have to say. But I always, you know, make the reference that the Lizzie Borden trial was the OJ trial of its day. Right. Because here you had this, you know, this this trial, this murder of two people that was front page news across the country. Mm-hmm. And 
the likely murderer, notice I said likely, right. got off in both cases. People ask me that all the time. I'm sure they ask you. Yes. They say, did Lizzie do, do it or not? And I, I always give the same answer. Like, I don't, I don't care. Mm-hmm. That's not my job. Right. In terms of what I'm doing. I've never gone into this saying, like, I want to set out to solve these murders. I've just gone and tried to document the paranormal side of things. Right. And so, to me, it doesn't matter one way or the other if she did it or she didn't do it. And why put myself in a position to have to take a stand either way if I don't need to? I've recently realized that people have no idea that I've been investigating the paranormal for as long as I have. I think people just assume that I I do what I did on TV and that's it. So, when I do talk about that piece, the most um, common question that I get actually everywhere all over the country is, well, do you think that Lizzie Borden did it? And I give my opinion, which is actually, I mean, you know my opinion. You've been with me. Mm-hmm. And it goes against what some people have broadcasted on TV. Um, but I've also been documenting paranormal activity in that house along with you for the better part of a decade or more. Right. So we've probably spent more time in that house than most people have. So... um it is a really common question. And then it, it kind of floors me sometimes when people don't even know who Lizzie Borden was or what happened because it was such a history maker, especially for that time. So, it, And I think it's going to be one of those things where, uh, you, you know, no matter where you go, if you tell people where you're from. Like, I know, you know, you probably go around and tell people, you know, in some cases you say, well, I'm from the Boston area. Right. I always say Boston because people don't understand. Or I, I live, I like to say, you know, like where I live, I like to say, you know how Massachusetts has Cape Cod and Cape Cod is an arm? Mm-hmm. I literally armpit. live in the armpit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, or I'll say I live between Boston and Providence. You know, we give these markers for people. Uh, you can say that you live in New Bedford to certain people because they'll have the connections with Moby Dick and and they'll understand that and some of the other things and the Portuguese culture and things like that. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you know you can say to people, "Well, I'm I'm from a I'm from a couple towns over from Fall River." Yeah. And then people are like, "Oh yeah, where Lizzie Borden happened." Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, let's bring our guests on because uh, right now we have them uh, listening to the Red Sox. I think on hold that's because the, the Red Sox are on, <laughs> especially if they're not Red Sox fans. So I'm hoping that that's uh, that that's what they're hearing. But uh, we'll uh, we'll find out. We'll bring them through, and I'm going to lock them in. So let me give the little bit of introduction here, because I didn't have everything open. So uh, Katie and Kirby are the killer hosts of the Killer Babes podcast. They're both born and raised in the New England area, specifically the south coast of Massachusetts. They're both 25 years old and still live in New England, where they're not investigating local stories. Katie is a civil engineer, and Kirby is a marketing director. They met in high school and have been best friends ever since bonding over their true passion of crime and folklore. And they join us on the air right now. Uh, good evening. Uh, who do we have on this line? This is Kirby. Hi, Kirby. How are you? Good. How are you? Uh, we are doing spooktacular, as we say here. You were a little bit low. I don't know if uh, if you can speak up a little bit or... Oh, yeah, sure. Is that better? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> but we'll, we'll try and, uh, we'll try and do the really best that we can. You sound really far away. You do. Do I really? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're going to have that thing where the phone starts making all these mechanical noises, too. Oh, good. Uh, that's all right. We'll, 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 try and, we'll try and do the best that we can with this. Uh, so, uh, and, and your, is Katie going to be joining us on another line, or is she with you? Um, yeah, she's going to call in. 
okay, we'll see if we can kind of boost these up a little bit as best that we can and try and keep any kind of interference. Well, so all we have you, uh, I will ask you, so how long have you guys been doing the Killer Babes podcast? Um, I think she's calling right now. Oh, there she goes. All right, we'll push her through. Katie, are you with us now, too? Hi, I think I am. All right, we do hear you, but man, this is coming in really, really low. Oh, is it? I mean, maybe should we try a different room? Uh, I think if you just talk louder, maybe. Okay. Talk as loud as you can, and that'll... Okay, I will, but me and Kirby are in the same room. I don't know if that's going to mess it up. That sounds okay. We'll We'll work our way through it. Okay. So I, I was asking Kirby uh, how long you guys have been doing the, the Killer Babes podcast for. Um, not that long. I think we started in February. February? Yeah, February. So what's that, like half a year now? Yeah, so that, yeah, about six months or so. And, and I know that you guys have uh, known each other for a while. Uh, how did it come about that, uh, that you decided that, you know, you would take this, this interest that you had and, and put it into a podcast? Yeah, I mean, we've always been interested in, like, weird, spooky, crazy stuff. Um, we used to watch A Thousand Ways to Die together in high school. It was, like, our favorite TV show. And then we moved on to CSI, and we watched all of those shows, Dexter, that kind of thing. Um, but we were sitting in a brewery, actually, for our friend's birthday, and it, we were just kind of, like, playing with the idea, like, oh, we should do a podcast, and then, you know, what would our podcast even be? And then Katie came up with this great name, and it just kind of took a life of its own, honestly. I mean, it really is a great name. It certainly got my attention <laughs> when I saw it yeah, on Twitter. Yeah, that's kind of what we were going for. <laughs> And, uh, and and really, it helps. I mean, uh, and Kirby, uh, reading the, the, the bio, it says that you're a marketing director. So it helps to know when you're launching a podcast, there's so many of them out there. It's it's hard to get attention for yourself. So having a good name is kind of the, the number one way to get attention. It's, it's not so much even about the topic sometimes as it is about just getting attention with the name of the show. Oh, for sure. Yeah, we, we thought a lot about that with the name, with the logo, uh, just the colors, too. We wanted to be... Uh, a little bit different than all the other podcasts out there uh, because there's like thousands of true crime podcasts mm-hmm. out there. Right. The the genre has really blown up uh, over, over the last couple of years. And I think what it is is that people have, you know, realized, first of all, that podcasts are uh, a much more viable way for a lot of people to consume content. But also, I think that the true crime genre just lends itself to the podcast format. I mean, they work, they work hand in hand so well because you can give people, you know, you set it up like you guys have where each episode you're focusing on a different crime, or you can look at something like serial where they break up, you know, one case into multiple episodes. I mean, it, it really just magically works hand in hand with the podcast format. Yeah, oh, definitely. I think we agree. I mean, I think it's a great genre because it's almost like storytelling, um, whether it's, a true crime episode we're doing or whether it's more of like a folklore um, a little bit more spooky it really is kind of like a story so i think it's a good platform for people to just kind of listen in and and get the information that way and then of course the other part of it though is that you are dealing with true that you know we look at it as 
true crime, it's it's there's two aspects to it. Yes, you're talking about the crime, but it's also things that are true and that happen to real people and that still have people that are being affected by it. And we talked about this, Stephanie and I, my co-host Stephanie, uh, she's here with me. And Hi. I, I should introduce <laughs> Hi. her to you guys. Hi, Stephanie. But, uh, Tim likes to talk. We... <laughs> Hey, somebody has to. We talked about it. Uh, we talked about it a little bit at the beginning of the show, where you're dealing with stories and and, and, and telling these uh, about these crimes that happen to real people that that will listen to this, and and you have to understand that part of your audience is going to be those who are affected by these crimes. Yeah, I think especially for us too, because we do um, cases from New England, and we live in New England. So I mean, the chances are there that you know somebody's listening. Is, is has been affected by the case or knows someone that's been affected by the case and we might even know someone that's been affected so we kind of have to keep that in mind when we're doing our research and especially when we're doing the podcast and kind of talking about everything something that we try to try to keep in mind throughout it and one of the real things that people must be concerned about too with talking about true crime is that not everything that you read is true not everything is stuff that actually is germane to the actual uh investigations and stories about this you need to be able to sift through what is you know legitimate fact to a case and what has just become kind of urban legend around some of these or do you guys not worry about that incorporate a lot of that in with your research as well we look at both of it we try to incorporate as much fact that we can uh, some of the things we don't know so we'll, we'll preface that in our podcast. We'll say, okay, guys, we don't know this, but this might be a factor, or this is something that's alleged or, or conspiracy or that kind of thing. So we do address it when we don't know because we don't want to bring fake news to the podcast or just things that we made up. So we do right. do the research. We do dive in. We look at a lot of um, different aspects. But we, if we do say something that we're not 100% sure on, we always say it in the podcast. Well, we try to always say it. Yeah. Right, if you're aware of it, sure, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that I think people don't always realize is that, you know, a lot of the stuff, like, just look at, you know, right now there's a big focus on the Manson murders because of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And, uh, n- listen, I don't want to give away any spoilers for the movie, of course, but there's people who will watch that movie and think that what happened in that movie is what happened. And that's not the case in that movie at all. And so, you know, you need to really kind of understand where you're getting your source information from and also realize that, you know, the the legend, we like to talk in paranormal research that, you know, the legend becomes fact, but when you're t- dealing with true crime, you don't always want that to be the case. Yeah. Yeah, I think we see that a lot. We've seen that in some of the cases that we've covered. Um, like, the thing that comes to my mind is we did... Um, one episode about like a satanic panic um, and the killings that happened in Fall River. And I mean, I, that kind of goes hand in hand with Charlie Manson kind of, but I mean, there's a lot of things that happen that become huge phenomenons because they're interesting for lack of a better word. And especially with something like the satanic panic where things kind of got out of hand and everyone kind of just rolls with this, um, these rumors or speculation because it makes the headlines and it sells the papers and you know it does that on social media too even nowadays so it, it does get hard to sift through what's true and what's not but i think we kind of just have to do the best we can to say 
hey, we saw this in one place, not here. We don't know if this is true. Someone said it. Um, but, like, this is true from police reports or court testimony or whatever. We kind of try our best to sift through that kind of stuff. I mean, there's there's at least the benefit of having, you know, so much of that available now. You know, when you're dealing, yeah. especially if you're dealing with cases that are relatively older cases, you know, a lot of that legwork has already been done. But also, you know, when you're dealing with some of these, you know, last 15 or 20 years, the, the, the Internet is a huge benefit because you can actually go and get, and even some of these older stories, if you have a newspapers.com subscription, but you can actually go back and get the real news as it was happening, uh, as opposed to, you know, some of these older cases that you can go far back in if you're talking about you know something that may have happened in in colonial times because we have such a rich history here in new england if you're trying to go back to the to the witch trials to any of this stuff there's always these easy diversions of history where sometimes you know the legend has become fact inadvertently and where you can't really follow that chain do you do you try and you know when you're dealing with certain cases of this uh certain cases of a more modern bend do you try to like create a a document for yourself for all of that that you could you could possibly share with your audience kind of a collection of what you found for your research to be able to share with them if they wanted to to maybe do some more on their own yeah so we haven't done that many recent cases i guess the most recent one that we've done would be the michelle carter and conrad roy case Mm -hmm. Um, we do write everything down in a word document uh, google doc actually but we haven't posted it into the world yet. Um, I know a lot of series do post little blurbs or paragraphs. Um, there is one series out there in the podcast world that posts a fair bit amount of transcript, I guess. But I think one of our biggest concerns and why we didn't post it yet, and I, I think we're open to looking at that, but one of the reasons we didn't post it is because there is kind of like a... Not copyright. What's the word I'm looking for? Like... <laughs> An embargo a lot of stealers or? out there, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of people who will take that podcast episode that you just did and say, "Oh, I plagiarize, plagiarize, yeah, there plagiarism," but not necessarily <laughs> plagiarism. They'll take like sentences here, sentences there, um, or just complete thoughts. Which I mean, it is hard when you're dealing in true crime. You know, you always want to start with the crime, the plot, what happens, the trials. Kind of do like an order, right? So a lot of podcasts will probably follow that same order when they're looking at a true crime, but I think that's one of the reasons we haven't posted it, just because we compi- we spend all that time compiling all that information, um, and I think one of our worries is that... You're, yeah, you're making it easy for somebody else to just... Right, because we don't, we don't just research and, like, write down bullets of facts but- the whole episode beforehand, because we want it to be... cohesive, first of all. So we want it to make sense. We don't just want to throw a bunch of facts at you and you don't understand what's actually happening. So we we do look it up, but then we also try to mold it into like a a sequence that makes sense to the audience and a little bit more of like a story, like start to end. And we like to, you know, throw in our own opinions and our own whatever, what we think about it. So it's not just the facts that we would put in this like what we do every week for our word documents it's also just kind of how we're going to present it so i think that's more of like what you're saying kirby like would get nervous that people would the facts they can google but more of our 
process of how we present it, I guess. Right. And I think some people, you know, some people look at it from a case of they want to say, you know, um, here's here's our here's our podcast episode on it. And here's more if you want to do more research and find out more. And I think another Mm -hmm. way to do it is to say, you know, here's our episode on it. And it's kind of a self-contained entity unto itself. And we have more. And maybe we're going to go back and revisit this later with some of the stuff that we didn't get to. I just I feel like for the most part, people will take you know we talk about paranormal topics here for the most part so people Mm -hmm. will take a a a two-hour show about the paranormal for what it is and then go on and move into their own um research and and in their own independent reading after that but for some reason with the true crime shows and the the true crime podcast it's almost like they want you know they want an annotation afterwards of everything so that they can you know have you just basically give them exactly where to look and and i don't get that because for me part of the thrill of looking into these things is to go and find my own stuff mm-hmm. you know yeah. uh, that's that's the way i look at it but hey you know it's it's as long as you're entertaining them and, and giving them the most information that you can you know that's all anybody can ask for especially because you know your show is like ours it's it's free just take it <laughs> exactly it is, and it is what it is. we do as well like we do our word document with our what we're going to present but we also keep track of like all the websites that we look at and if, if we go to different kind of media to research so i guess that's something that we could also think about sharing is where we have looked to give people like a kickoff of how they could do their own research and i think yeah. that yeah i think that I there's think a if lot anyone of- contacted us too like we'd be more than open to doing that if someone was actually interested and like delving more into a topic that we covered. Mm. But I, I don't know. I don't know about putting it out there. I don't know. I just don't know. <laughs> There's a lot. I, I will kind of, maybe I do need to have you guys kind of separate a little bit because we are getting some echo on the line from each one of you. Uh, but stay far enough that you can still look at each other and point to who wants to answer the question. Listen to me directing them how to live their lives. Well, they could just use one phone if they're in the <laughs> yeah. same room. No, you don't want to what, and pass the phone back and forth. That's terrible. Mm-hmm. You don't want them to do that. I usually We're going use to separate headphones. a little bit, see if it helps it so. any bit. Yeah, that sounds a little better. The The problem is, is and, and for those who are wondering about the sound quality, so when we're broadcasting over the Skype and we're not going over the radio, we don't have the same intake that we would have for the phone lines as we would for the radio. So mm-hmm. basically what we did is it's just the engineer jacked into an extra pot on the board with a connection that is not the same broadcast quality we'd be using for phones because the way that he looked at it is we're just pushing it out over the internet so it doesn't have to be as good because that's he doesn't quite understand what we're doing here so that's it's why like if, that for a while. if anybody's if anybody's wondering why it sounds a little a little bad and then and then the other problem too is we have to push it out over the phones over the air and then we have to push it out over the the pot for the phone lines for the stream and the reason why it went from being soft to being louder is because I realized if we're not going over the air, I don't have to have the phone pot up. Mm-hmm. And so if I put that up, it kills their signal a little bit. So now I was able to push it up a little bit. So see the things that we're learning on the fly. You guys don't have to worry about this because you do a podcast. It's so much easier. It's a lot easier than that. I have no idea anything you're saying. I'm just sitting <laughs> and nodding. Neither does most of our audience, but I feel like I just had to explain it. But... um but, so let's talk about a little bit about the process of putting together an episode. You know, do you, you decide to, to cover a certain topic and you start looking into it? How do you decide how you're going to present that? Do you talk it out? Do you each kind of do your own research? How do you plan out an episode and, and how are you going to put it in podcast form? 
Yeah, um, that's a good question. I mean, I think it definitely varies each time, um, depending on the topic. Um, basically, before we even started, we came up with a huge list of possible topics because we were so excited. There's so many things we wanted to cover, um, so many things that we've already heard about, but maybe you wanted to learn more about. So we have a huge running list of topics we want to cover, which sidebar, if anyone has suggestions, please let us know because we're always willing to learn more about things we don't know about. Um, but I mean, we knew from the start we wanted it to be a mix of true crime, but also like some more kind of fun stuff, like some folklore or urban legends, if you will. So we have a mix of both of those, and we kind of try to go back and forth between the two, like maybe have a serious one one week and then maybe a more lighthearted one the next week. Um, so that's kind of how we decide which topic we're going to cover or which case we're going to cover. And then as far as molding the story, we just kind of... I mean, we're always in communication anyway. We're always talking to each other. So we're basically always trying to come up with what we think will be the best way to do that certain podcast or that episode. Um, and like Kirby said, we do a Google Doc. That way we can both kind of do research and add more to it. Um, because we do both do the research. We both kind of come up with the facts and the storyline. And then we also both... I know a lot of episodes or a lot of different podcasts do... Like, one person will research, and they'll tell the other one. Like, it's a complete surprise. We don't do that because I feel like the more backup you have, the better. Um, I have Maria. She has a good one. So she helps me out sometimes. That's the way we like to do it. Um, but, yeah, I think that it depends on what kind of episode it is, if it's true crime or folklore, how we kind of set it up. But we start researching, we start reading all about it, and then from there we kind of decide how we think it would best be presented to the audience. And, and that's kind of the, the the real key, I think, to your podcast working so well is that you are friends. And right. I see what happened. Somebody dropped off there. So. Is that what that was? Yep. We'll push her back. Through. Oh, and then I dropped the other one because I forgot to lock it in. So we'll just have to have Katie call back and I'll lock her in as well. Uh, the the good news is I found out the new system is coming in like in a oh, month, really? month, month and a half. I'm kind of impressed by these new chairs already. We did get so. new chairs. So, See, that's one thing that you don't have to worry about doing a podcast is you can actually make yourself comfortable and yes. you don't have to use like the equipment that they leave for you. We We had the most uncomfortable chairs for years, but now we got some nice new ones. So, And uh, so if you can... Uh, Kirby, you're still with us? We brought you back in? Yeah. I actually, I actually hung up, uh, but I called back in and said, he's calling back in. Oh, it sounds really bad now, though. Yeah. It's worse. Well, we'll we'll work it out as we go through. I'm not, I'm, I'm not too worried because, like, we got things going mm-hmm. pretty well when they were on together before, so. Right. I think if we can just get them both back on the phone, we'll Should be able to, to fix this. And that was totally my fault because I didn't lock in the other. There's You have to take the call, push them through onto the air, and then lock them. And I always forever forget to lock the people in. So that's one of the, the biggest issues that I have to but It's learn. been like that forever. And it's, you know. The phone's not changing. The, system, the, the board is changing and the system's changing. But the phone, I got to learn that. If I haven't learned it by now. It might not ever happen. But that's why I love you. Okay, now everybody's locked in. Yes, I think so. Sorry about that. Okay, we can hear you. 
So okay, okay. So we have Katie. We have Kirby still. Yes. Okay. All right. Hopefully we can get over these issues. You, you know, it's we're, we we try to be a professional mm-hmm. radio show here, but things happen. We don't. Yeah, worry we have never been on the radio before. If you can't. <laughs> hey, listen. That's all right, because we're not actually on the radio right now anyway, so it's just us talking. So you don't have to worry about that. And But I should have definitely warned you guys you were going to get the baseball game in your ear when you called in. That's on me. That was a surprise. <laughs> I always forget to tell people fans, that. So. <laughs> what? You're not sports fans? Well, we're, you know, bandwagon sports fans. Well, I was going to say, you started off with a sports-related case for your first episode. Well, because we knew we were in New England. We knew who our audience was. And it was also, like, right after the Super Bowl, so we figured it was perfect timing. As long as you're a bandwagon fan for the right team, that's all that matters. Well, obviously, yeah. <laughs> yes, we are. Otherwise, we might accidentally hang up on you again. <laughs> <laughs> so, the as I mentioned, the first episode was kind of sports-related. You, mm-hmm. you started off with Aaron Hernandez, and I'm just going to go over some of these uh, episodes that came out in the early days of the, the show way back in February. Way back then. <laughs> you started off with Aaron Hernandez, and then you moved into the Freetown State Forest, uh, which, as you know, encompasses a lot of you know paranormal stuff as well as the true crime stuff. You also focused on episode five. You focused on Salem with the Hawthorne Hotel and the best name for any liquor store ever, <laughs> Bunghole Liquors. Listen, people, if you're not it's from the thing. area, it's the real name of the place. It's yes. called Bunghole Liquors. Oh, they have merch to prove it. Yes. And if you've ever seen people walking around with the shirts, especially all of us paranormal people that would go to Salem Con, it's legitimate. That's where it comes from. And, mm-hmm. you you know, you dealt with the Fall River Satanic Killings, the Rhode Island Vampires, the Boston Strangler, which, you know, I remember we did a TV show in, over in England, myself and Moniz and Costa. We all went out to, um, I forget the neighborhood, but right around Fenway Park. It was... In, it was where some of the BU dorms are, okay, the, and or the northeastern dorms. But anyway, it was it, one of the the buildings was now a dorm, but it used to be one of the apartments of one of the victims of the Boston Strangler, and we went there for this TV show that was it's called Conversations with a Serial Killer, where they had a medium that would supposedly be able to communicate with the the ghost of Albert DeSalvo, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the first time, as far as I know, this is the first time anybody ever used a, a ghost box on, on TV because we had just built our knockoff Frank's box, uh, one of the shack hacks. And uh, as far as I know, it's the first time anybody used it on TV. And they were like infatuated with it, the producers. Because really? every time they would ask him, like, where are you from? And it would say, Boston. Oh, God. And Albert, where did you live? Boston. Where did you die? Well, of course it was saying Boston. Because it's picking up the... Boston. Yeah, we were in Boston and scanning through the radios. And we're 10 feet from Fenway Park during a Red Sox game. So every other word is going to be Boston. (laughs) Yeah, so so that kind of lends on to what you think of the whole uh, paranormal side of it. Yeah, I mean, you must have some paranormal beliefs if, if you're looking into, or at least not, not necessarily beliefs, you don't have to believe in it, but at least some paranormal awareness if you're talking about some of these same places and cases that we talk about here on this show. Yes and no. Yeah, I so, think that's a question for us. <laughs> this is Kirby, but I 100% believe in both spirits, ghosts, paranormal, uh, aliens, etc., all of that. It just combined everything that kind of falls under that really large paranormal umbrella. 
Uh, Katie, on the other hand, believes in like half and half. I'm a big skeptic. I'll admit it. Well, I, I mean, that's understandable. You want to have a, a, a bit of skepticism to it, but it is, it's not coincidental, I, I don't think, that so much of the, the true crime cases that happen here in New England have a paranormal aspect to them. Because first of all, I think any true crime case, especially unsolved stuff, is going to lend itself to having paranormal tentacles that will kind of uh, reach off of it. But at the same time, like here... We always say, like, uh, there's something wrong with this area. And we don't know if what is wrong with this area is a result of all the negative things that happen here or if the negative things that happen here are a result of there being something wrong with this area. It's a very chicken-and-the-egg argument, but there definitely is a power here. And that power, that, that sickness, that, uh, that darkness that permeates throughout this corner of New England... It goes both ways. It goes both into our reality, but also into the into the supernatural side of things. That's true. I know there is. I almost. It's funny, but not funny that we lucked out that we <laughs> live in New England and wanted to make a true crime or scary whatever podcast about the area we live in because we lucked out that this is where we're from because there's just an abundance of and like you you said it. I mean, there's true crime, but there's also folklore and it does it goes hand in hand um a lot of the things we read about it might be true crime and then it lends itself to a ghost that everyone knows or a legend or vice versa it's almost like life imitates art but with crime i guess so so you're saying you would have focused on new england even if you didn't live in this area i don't i don't know i don't even know if i would be as into right True yeah. crime and everything. If I wasn't from this area, I, I might not be. That's a good point, and I, I think that that might be kind of the same thing for us when it comes to the paranormal. You know, if we didn't live in this area, you know, maybe we wouldn't have had the same experiences that we had. You know, uh, maybe it wouldn't have led to. You know, Stephanie's a different story because she's a, a psychic medium, so she's had these abilities since she was born. But you know, maybe she wouldn't feel as comfortable being open about them mm-hmm. if she hadn't lived in this area and experienced what she experienced. So I think, you know, it kind of does go hand in hand with with forming who we are. But one thing we learned about doing this show and putting it out in podcast form is that there's people all over the world that have an interest in things that go on in New England. And I'm sure you've seen the same thing. You're doing a show about uh, a podcast about New England true crime, but you're probably getting emails and comments from people all over the world because for some reason, People are infatuated with what goes on in our area, both these true crime stories and and the paranormal ones. They love the New England area. It's crazy. They come and travel from everywhere just to see some of these places. Yeah, I mean, we're we're going to talk, I think, more about Lizzie Borden, but, like, we'll just say one thing right now is that when we did stay there, I mean, we were the only ones from the area, and there was, like, 15 people there or something, and we were the only ones, and... Everyone was like, oh, how often do you come if you live, like, 10 minutes away? And we're like, uh, this is our first time. Like, I almost felt bad. They drove for hours to get there. I mean, and we we see where our listeners are, like, through the app that we make our podcast. And they're like, I mean, I'm not saying we have a huge audience or anything like that, but I'm saying there's a few people that are just in random countries. Like, what? there's been random countries. We've mm-hmm. seen people look at our from podcast. Germany, um, other parts of Europe. Australia, I think. Australia, yeah. Okay. We 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 always tell the story that uh, our first week we put the show up to to podcast, we only had about a hundred people download it, but one of them was in Japan. 
Yeah. <laughs> and we were like, wow, how did somebody in Japan find out about our show? But, you know, they just Google Paranormal Podcast or whatever and they find it. And then uh, we, you know, we see the different countries pop up and we realize, like, it's not, it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with the topics that we're covering, which, you know, we see it in our download numbers. You know, you can have on, you know, there's a lot of paranormal television shows and we get to have on the people who are on those cast, uh, cast members of those shows. So you expect like those shows are going to do big numbers because it's somebody that's on TV. It's a celebrity. And so you expect those numbers to, to, to be pretty big when you have somebody like that on. But then we'll focus on something that's purely New England. And it will dwarf the numbers of the podcast with the celebrity or the the Lizzie Borden shows that we do or the Amityville shows that we do that have a lot of downloads. You'll talk about one small little part of our area that you think nobody cares about, like, you know, the Fearing Tavern in Wareham that we talk about or, or you, something you guys did an episode on, Fort Tabor in New Bedford. And all of a sudden, people are all over want to know about this and it just it, it always astounds me to see like these things that we take for granted are the things that people seem to be the most interested in yeah i think that's the, yeah that's what we took away from realizing that people in other countries are listening and people are traveling from everywhere to go to fall river we're like oh we yeah we take it for granted i guess so before we get into the Lizzie Borden story, I do want to ask you about that Fort Tabor episode that you did, which was uh, episode 11. Uh, for those of you who are you know, looking at the Killer Babes podcast page and wondering which one to uh, download first. So what what did you focus on for the Fort Tabor episode? So we started off, we did a little bit of history, um, just about the area and how it, it had come about. Um, and then we dove a little bit into reported paranormal activity. Uh, we actually didn't get to go into the, the fort. Um, all we did was go underneath into, like, the bunker area. Nothing happened. Spoiler alert. Um, but it was just crazy being there in person because we try to visit um, as many places as we can when it's related to um, paranormal or even crime-related. It's, it's one of those areas that we were uh we were hesitant at first to go in and investigate and and to bring people into because we had only known of one paranormal group that went in there and came back and said that they had activity now we knew them and we trusted them uh so when they came back and said hey there's really something going on there it seems like we knew we knew it was at least worth checking out but then a lot of the other stuff that was out there at the time was like YouTube videos of people that had snuck into Battery Milliken and and uh, and things that were kind of, you know, you couldn't really trust what was going on because of the, the circumstances and the situation of how they got in there. And then we had the chance to actually go and investigate it, and we were blown away by some of the activity that we got in there. And you start to peel away the layers of it, and there's not a lot of tragedy that happened there in the old times, but it's more like some of the modern stuff that goes on in there. Like we, we were in there, Stephanie and, and, you know, I remember you get overwhelmed, not with anything that has to do with the military history of it, but you get overwhelmed with all of the people who have gone in there and, and OD'd right. in, in recent mm-hmm. times. So it's a place yeah, where the a lot of people, well, there wasn't really any energy there that was connected to the military. It was a lot of just gross energy from things that had gone on there in the more recent years. So is that, did you guys catch anything else? Any other kind of... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Normal stuff when you were down there? Or yeah. Or was it just kind of the, the, 
those feelings. Well, so the first kind of, I mean, we've always had like shadow activity there, shadow people. Uh, if you're in battery milk, and, and I'm glad we're not on the radio right now because I would never want anybody to try to sneak in there, but I do have to put out the caveat. Yes, Don't please. go into these places that we're talking about. The city of New Bedford does not want anybody in there. Uh, we were in there with permission. That permission is no longer granted to anyone because the city's new lawyers do not want anybody going into there because of liability purposes. So please do not go into uh, the fort or any of the batteries. Uh, that we're going to be talking about right now, but okay, now I've said my disclaimer. <laughs> Good job. So when we went into, uh, you know, Battery Milliken, you can hear, you know, footsteps. You can hear people talking when you know there's nobody else in there. And when you're in the dead center of Battery Milliken, you're not picking up noises from outside. And uh, I, I don't know if you guys have ever had the chance to be in Milliken. I don't suggest it. No, no, we did. We didn't go into it. No. Okay, so it, it basically, it's the shape of an. It's it's dug out of the side of a hill, uh, so it's it's kind of they call it underground, but it's 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 you walk in from the street level entrance, but it's dug out of the side of a hill. It's in the shape oh, of. Oh no, we did we did that one. We just didn't do the other one. Okay, well, don't tell anybody that you went in there. Mm-hmm. So it's the it's the shape of an H, and then in the middle of it is some offshoots of that H and we were in the dead center of that and uh, a, a psychic had been in there before us and a medium and she said hey you know there's a young boy in this one particular chamber who is ducking down and uh, and I couldn't get him to talk to me maybe he'll talk to you guys if you go in there so we went in and we were you, you could feel a cold breeze blowing in our faces now you would not get a breeze you're underground in the side right. of a hill, in the middle of this giant tunnel, off the main entrance. So this breeze would have to come in and then hook a right and then hook another left to get into where we were. But we're feeling this breeze. And by the way, it was coming in the direction of a brick wall. Yeah. So we're, we're getting this, this breeze blowing in our faces. And we try to see if that's you know a sign of, of something. And I, and I go to reach out because I feel the cold and I'm trying to you know check for the temperature. And the sound... It just sounded like the roof was caving in on us. And we screamed. We flipped out. We have a recording of it. All we did was swear through it because we thought we were going to die. We thought mm-hmm. this roof was caving in on us in the middle of this this underground tunnel. But nothing moved. Like after we calmed down, after the noise stopped, we're looking all around. Nothing had shifted. There were no animals up there that we could see. Uh, it was so, so loud. Uh, it sounded like it was, it was going to be hugely destructive and nothing was wrong. Mm-hmm. So... When we went back into the group, because uh, and, and t- this is part of a, a larger event, when we were talking to the group about it, the group said that, uh, you know, that was the, as we're talking about, it, we were, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of spitballing yeah. what it could have yeah. been. And we, we remember that that's where they used to fire the cannons from. And the cannons were on top of the battery. And that whole, there's a big rail system in there that would carry the cannonballs up to the cannons and the artillery up to the cannons. And so we realized that that little boy, that young man that the the medium saw wasn't ducking down because he was in trouble or hurt or scared or anything. It's because there was a fire in the hole. And what we heard was actually the phantom cannon fire. Oh, God. And so, yeah, so that really kind of blew our minds. And then Mm -hmm. another time we were there for a television show, a, a PBS show, and... 
we they were filming in Battery Millican, and they said to us, "Hey, we're going to go film outside. If you guys want to investigate a little bit while we film outside," and that's when I looked down. This is broad daylight, although even in broad daylight, Millican's dark as all hell. Right. But I'm looking down the the tunnel, and I saw this shape, human shape, looked like a man, but it was shimmering. And I'm sure you two are too young to understand this reference, but I reference the um, the Peter Gabriel video for Sledgehammer. At the end of that video, he gets up out of a chair, and the room is all stars, and he's wearing like a a, a suit that's all like black sky and stars, and that's what it looked like. It looked like like shimmery stars, like within a human shape, and we all saw it. Like everybody that was in there looked down there and saw it. And so, yeah, you probably, if you saw the episode of Ghost Hunters where they talked about the Shimmering Man, that's where it came from. But they just wouldn't. We did. We did see that, yes. They I don't understand the reference, though. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to watch the video. Uh, they have, uh, they used to have these things called music videos on this I, thing called MTV. <laughs> yeah. I think I told my story on that episode, too, yeah. of um, the military men that I saw on the lawn. Mm-hmm. I think that's a story I told in that episode. I don't remember. It's been so long. And, and it's just, it's one of those places where there's a great history there that they could be exploiting for not exploiting, but they could be utilizing to make some money to help with the restorations and the city just stands in the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, uh, let's, let's get into the, to the meat and potatoes of tonight and let's talk about Lizzie Borden because I think, did you guys purposely save Lizzie Borden to be your, your, your season finale for the podcast? Because yes, we did. it seemed like oh, you were yeah. kind of building toward it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because when we, told everyone this was going to be our next episode or, or whatever they were all like how has it taken you this long to do lizzie borden when you're a new england <laughs> true crime broadcast and we're like oh don't worry like we were planning it but we didn't just want to you know we just want to talk the talk we wanted to go there and you do have to look ahead of time like it's it is a bed and breakfast you can't just go when you want to so it, it wasn't it was in the plan we we wanted to start having we wanted to end happy so I think I think we did. So when you went there, uh, were you, you you said there was other people that were there, so there was other people staying there at the same time. Yeah, like fourteen, fifteen people. Yeah, that's a lot of people. So all the rooms were booked. Yeah, it was more than you you would think would would be in that house. And and how many people that were there were there because they were interested in the true crime aspect, and how many were interested in the paranormal aspect? Just you know, from anybody that you might have spoken to. I think they were all interested in the paranormal aspect. Yeah, it seemed more that they were more in, into the paranormal than the... I mean, they were very interested in, in the case, it seems like, but, uh, yeah, it seemed a little bit more like they were into the paranormal. Like, they wanted to do, like, there was a Ouija board there and, and a couple other things that they were interested in, including us. So which room did you stay in? We stayed in the Lizzie and Emma Suite. Ah, which was Lizzie and Emma's bedroom. Right. But yeah. Which always weird. That room just weirds me out. Yeah. Not only that, but what weirds me out the most about that is like, there there had to have been an argument between the two of them at some point mm-hmm. about why Lizzie got the big bedroom and Emma was off to the side. Mm-hmm. Well, we, yeah, right? we talked about this for a minute on the podcast because event, uh, initially Emma had the big bed and Lizzie had the smaller one because Lizzie is small, younger by like a significant amount. But then one day, one day, Lizzie comes back from her extravagant vacation, said she had too many knickknacks to store in her little room, so she asked to have the big room, and for some reason, Emma just agreed. 
See, that's one thing that you have when you're the oldest. Yeah, you should right? get first choice of your room, and well, she you shouldn't wanna, have given it up. If you want to get deep into that, maybe Emma wanted to be in the corner by herself with the door shut and not have an adjoining door to her parents. That is true, too. That is true, but Emma would still have had to go through Lizzie's room exit. That's still better than having to go through your parents, well, your dad and your stepmoms. That's true. I mean, they didn't go through that entranceway, but I mean, there still was an entranceway that existed, I guess. There's, um, there's also in Lizzie's room, and this is just a paranormal story, but uh, that they have that cabinet in Lizzie's room where they have some very highly collectibles in there, some very rare editions of some of the books about the case and some other trinkets and stuff that's in there, and it's locked. Um, and I don't know if anybody told you guys this, but it's not just locked because there's rare and valuable stuff in there. They put the rare and valuable stuff in there because it's locked, because it used to fly open on its own in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. So they put a lock on it so it would stop doing that because it would break the glass that was in the window and that was in the uh, door. They did not tell us that. They told us about the shutter. There's a shutter on one of the windows in that room that they said just came open willy-nilly on its own. But they didn't tell us about the glass. I think it, on its it probably depends on who you have as a tour guide and how into the paranormal side that they are. Uh, we got yeah. really lucky over the years to have... Um, tour guides that we became friends with that told us pretty much everything yeah then they don't always tell the paranormal stories right. on the tour either like they usually just stick to the history and that's yeah, about that's it right. well i mean it takes two hours just to get the history right because there's so, so much there how many times have, have you guys been on been there been for a tour oh um, i took the tour once but yeah. i've been there more than two dozen times Oh my god! Like we, I, and when I say been there, I mean like I've done more than two dozen investigations there. Right. I don't. I don't. It's been over ten years that I've been going. So, um, I took the tour recently with a friend because she's from Virginia and she wanted to come up and um, do it. And I think that's like the first time that I actually sat on an official tour. I don't really count the tours that we do during our events I as like took, the official I, tour. I took one the so, first time yeah. I went, and that was the last but, time I did. But that's you know we we do events there. And right. Also, like we we have the ability that if we're just in the neighborhood, we can stop in, and uh, and when Leanne has paranormal problems, she'll call us to come and see what's going on. Right. So, like, we're kind of always there. It's like our home away from home. So, mm-hmm. like, wow. Yeah, we we're just very fortunate in that way. Um, and and I I won't I won't bore the audience with going through all the paranormal stories, but some night we'll all get together for a beer. And or whatever you drink, mm-hmm. and we'll we'll uh, share some of them. Beer and wine and everything, so we're there. I don't right. care about the booze; just give me all the good food. Yeah, we'll just sit and we'll talk <laughs> about all the. Uh... Yeah, can you got Kirby on that one. <laughs> all right, good. We'll we'll tell all the stories, but the um, in terms of the actual crime itself, and we're coming up on you know we're forty five minutes away now from the anniversary. Uh, th- this is this is a case that is forever going to fascinate people. Uh, I'll let you decide between the two of you who wants to do this, but does somebody want to give kind of an overview of, of what happened? Kirby is pointing at me. <laughs> I guess I got the, uh, the, the thought. Okay, sure. This is a quick summary of Lizzie Borden, folks. So let's start with the Bordens live in Fall River. Um, they, it was Andrew Borden his second wife, Abby Borden, and his two daughters, Lizzie and Emma. So, and their maid, 
whose real name was Bridget, but they called her Maggie for reasons that are pretty sad. <laughs> but so they all live together in Fall River. And basically on August 4th, which, like you said, is in 45 minutes, um, I think 127 years ago, mm-hmm. 1892, I think, um, that morning-ish, 11 a.m. around, um, the maid basically heard a holler from Lizzie Borden saying, come downstairs, my father's dead. The maid came down, saw that Mrs. Borden was dead, and everyone was called to the house, police, investigators, the coroner, um, and then I believe, like, a couple of hours later, they wander upstairs and they find Mrs. Borden dead. And they were both hacked to death, presumably by a blunt object. Um, obviously, you've all heard this riddle. Um, it's believed to be an axe, but it's actually not confirmed to be an axe. Um, but, yeah, so the, the Bordens were found dead. And Lizzie was the one who ended up being put on trial. And in the end, spoiler alert, she was found not guilty, so she was acquitted, and technically this is a cold case unsolved from the late 1800s in Fall River. Right, and that's that's what I think is the, the thing that draws a lot of people back there is that it is unsolved, but we were talking earlier, like, there's there's not going to be new evidence that comes to light in this. I mean, sure, the, the murder weapon was never really found. They found, if I remember right, and, and Lolly's in the chat room. She can tell us. She worked there as a tour guide mm-hmm. for a long time, so she can tell us if, if we're wrong on any of this. But oh, uh, they found the hatchet handle, but not the blade itself. Right. And so that's why they were assuming that it was this this hatchet that uh, that they thought did them in. But in actuality, from what I understand, is they were so... Um, so what I'm looking for. Um, the first word that came to my mouth was mashed potatoes, but I don't want to say that. But that's okay. kind of what they resembled <laughs> when they found them, because they were so yeah. oh, their bodies they're yeah. hacked up bad. Yeah, they were so. Uh, uh, Whoever mangled. did that, it was definitely a crime. Yeah, of mangled passion. is a good word. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't somebody just trying to kill them. It was somebody that would who really had hatred in their heart. Yeah. Right. Yes, I think there's a lot to dissect in what you just said. But I'll start with yes. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why it's such a huge huge phenomenon i mean especially around here but it's not just around here it's everywhere because it's unsolved and it seems like it should have so easily been solved and i think everyone thinks like oh let me just research like i'll find out (laughs) let me just research it for 10 minutes and i'll figure it out but like you said we we are not we are never going to have new evidence in this case so it's just we cannot reconstruct it we cannot say definitively at this point in time who did it and, and, and it's just so frustrating. And Lolly came to my rescue. She she answered the question uh, in the chat room. So they they found the hatchet head, but not the handle. But right. but it wasn't the yeah. murder weapon anyway. So but mm-hmm. it, I mean, in the end, uh, you know, the reason why Lizzie was the suspect is because she did some suspicious things. Right. I mean, uh, it wasn't just a matter of the fact. It wasn't just a matter of her having the best motive for doing it. Although she did have a pretty good motive, if you believe some of the mm-hmm. stories that were coming out, but also the, there was some weird behavior leading up to this. Uh, now, some of this I'm sure you've come across, and we can kind of determine what's what's urban legend and, and what's what's truth. 
I'm sure you heard the story about there was a there's a a tale that people tell. Well, maybe tale was a bad word. Yeah. That people tell that she had actually murdered a cat with a hatchet in the basement not that long before. I yes, don't know. I've heard that sporadically, not from everywhere, but I have heard that. So I I don't know how much credit to give that. I wouldn't I give it any. Our tour guide said that wasn't true. Right. I wouldn't yeah. give that any any credence at all because. You know, first of all, she was somebody who loved animals. Right. And she dedicated her life to animals afterwards. And her entire fortune. Uh, there's yeah. a, there's an animal shelter in Fall River that to this day is still uh, still benefits from Lizzie Borden's fortune. So I find it hard to believe that she would have done that. But that's a story that people tell. Uh, then also, there was the story of, uh, of her going out and buying prussic acid. Mm-hmm. Or trying uh, to. Yeah, trying to buy prussic yeah. acid, she said, was to take a stain out of a coat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, a seal skin cape, I believe she said. Yes. And <laughs> so, you know, she's trying to buy this for that purpose, but that also could have been used to poison the family, who, by the way, were also already feeling poorly on the day of the murders, supposedly because they had been forced to eat rancid mutton. Even that is Ugh. questionable in terms of the history, mm-hmm. but there was supposedly some sort of stomach illness that was going around the house that day. Yeah, which we've talked about, and our tour guide brought that up, too. And we were kind of saying, like, I mean, listen, this is the 1800s. Like, they didn't have refrigerators. I think at some point, Abby Borden actually went to their local doctor and said, like, hey, I think I'm being poisoned. Like, I'm physically ill, and so is my husband, and it's violent, and I think we're being poisoned. And I think the doctor's response was, like, you need to get milk more often. Like, it's going bad, lady. Right. Well, and and we're not talking about, you know, uh, the most modern of times, but at the same time, they weren't as backward in that era as we like to think that they were. And from some of the stories that come out of the Borden house. So the Borden house didn't have amenities that other homes in the area could have had. Right. Especially some of the more well-off people of Fall River like they were, uh, you know, so they didn't have the same luxuries and, and the same, you know, I, I mean, I, I think they had an icebox, I would assume. Yeah, but, I think they had an icebox, but they did not have electricity. Right. Or, they, yeah, he wouldn't toilet. even put in toilets. Yeah. So you, you're dealing with... Um, a monster. I don't know. I, what monster doesn't want toilets? But the house didn't have that. them when they bought yeah. it, though. No, but he refused to put them in, even well after everybody got them. I don't know how much of that is truth, and how much of that is just what people have well, I got that built from into, the, into the legend of Andrew Borden? You know what I mean? Like, I wonder how much of this negativity... I mean, obviously, you know I'm no, I'm no defender of Andrew Borden. No. He and I have our issues. Right. Ooh, I would love to hear about that. Yeah, no, we don't we, get along. That, that happens over the food and the booze. Yes. Okay, love that. We, it's going to take a while. We really don't get along. <laughs> we have 10 years worth of stories, at least. Oh, my God, yes. We need to hear about it. it might, some of them might go back to when I told them that his daughter was ugly. But uh, I have oh my, my own Andrew Borden stories. No. Yeah, and then he threw a picture at me. So, but there's I threatened to steal his gold. That didn't turn out well for me either. But there's I, I do think that there's been some um, revisionist history, we'll call it, mm-hmm. to make Andrew maybe more of a monster than he was. I have no proof of that, but I'm just saying that that could be a possibility because. Over the years, we've tried to build Lizzie Borden into a sympathetic figure, or some some people have tried to build her into a sympath, sy- right, sympathetic the figure. Christian 
girl who is a lot younger. She's always portrayed like a lot younger than she actually was. Um, I mean, in some of the movies, she's portrayed. She looks like she's like maybe twenties, early twenties. Mm-hmm. But she was in her thirties. Right, she was thirty-three. Mm-hmm. If I remember right. So, like, in that by that point, you know, in that day and age, that's you're a spinster if you're living at home and you're thirty-three. Right. Um, right. It was just all bizarre behavior. The entire thing was. But I do think like somebody, I, th- I think that a lot of history has made Andrew into the villain when he might not have necessarily been as bad as they yeah. say that he was. I think we kind of talked about that on our episode too because I, we agree. I mean, a lot of people, like almost everything you read is like, Andrew was terrible. He didn't put electricity and he didn't put toilets in. Like they had all this money, but he was just cheap as hell. Like he wouldn't give his daughters anything. And that's why they hated him. That's why Lizzie killed him. But uh, I mean, you really can't give too much credence to that. And, like, a couple of other things I read made good points in that. I mean, yes, a lot of pe- a lot of the richer people did have electricity at this time. But also, like, you got to think about the fact that some people were nervous about such a huge new invention of electricity. A lot of people were scared by the idea. They didn't understand it. Um, you know, maybe he was a little bit on the cheaper side but who's to say that they hated him because of that i mean i mm. we also had we found evidence that he maybe didn't spoil himself so much but he did give to his daughters i mean they went on extravagant vacations and there's proof that andrew bought emma i think we read something about he paid for extra stuff while she was away at school and he paid for lizzie to go on these like extravagant vacations so i mean i i think you're right in saying that there's a lot of speculation around andrew and just a lot of piling on like trying to make him the victim which i think we also get because why would somebody hack someone to death without them being a monster i think we try to put reason to the rhyme but we don't we don't really know what it is so one of the theories or one of the things that people talk about is that uh, just prior to the the murders happening and that this might have been the reason why um, Andrew's brother-in-law and 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 Emma and uh, Emma and Lizzie's uncle John Morris had been visiting was because there was a business deal going on. Uh, supposedly, there was a rental property that Andrew owned that supposedly was going to go to his daughter so that they would have their own means of income and they would be able to live off the money that they made from renting out this property. And he was supposed to be transferring the ownership to them, and they found out that. Uh, John Morse was there to help with the transaction of selling that property or, or, or signing that property over to uh, Abby Borden, the stepmother, and that that might have been what caused all of this to go down, that that might have been one of the motives behind it. I don't know how much research you guys did into that part of the story. Yeah, I mean, that's... Kirby, you remember the thing that's on the wall in the Lizzie Borden house that literally said it was like index card or something and it was entitled like the risk that caused tension between Lizzie and Abby Borden and it was like a police record of this happening. Nice. Yeah, but I think that was the certificate that um, he signed over to Abby to help out her sister because her sister needed housing. So technically Abby owned it legally um but she just basically gave it to her sister to live there rent free uh, i think that was the the like not the deed but um the title certificate so this is concerning the rental property that he was giving emma and lizzie for like 
their job to rent out to other people? This is like, I think, Tim, you're saying like, this was like the night that John came over, right? And then they were talking. They were supposedly or allegedly talking about right. this this property that may have come into um, Abby's possession or may not have because there's, there's no title for it. There's no note that says well, or promissory or whatever, right? I, I, th- I think they died before they could complete the transaction was the problem. Right, yeah. So, so it's like, the, it's, it, it might have been a reason why they were killed. It's just a speculative. It's a speculation that it was going down because we don't we don't know, you know. It's right. just one of the things that was that was brought up as as a possibility. But so now we have, you know, we get to the we, we understand what's going on in the Borden house. Uh, there's there's dysfunction there no matter what. And some of the stories now. What's funny is, and and I don't know how much you guys covered this because it's not something that shows up in the factual historical record, but. We'll get a little a little woo here for a minute. Since they started opening that house up to people to be able to investigate it, you know, a lot of psychics and mediums have gone in there and tried to, you know, solve the case with their abilities or, or at least say that somebody, some spirit that lives there was trying to tell them the answers. And we'll hopefully before the end of this hour, we'll be able to tell you why you can't really trust that. But the, the idea is that these mediums were coming back and, and, and many of them were saying that there was an inappropriate relationship between Andrew and Lizzie. Mm-hmm. That there was something going on there as most of them portray her as a victim and that she was being sexually abused and sexually assaulted. Uh, there are other retellings of the story in which there was that relationship, but it was reciprocated. And that that's why she wore, I believe she wore Andrew's high school ring. Was was? I believe it was the opposite. I think Lizzie gave... Andrew a ring when she graduated high school. So there's there's this weird connection between them that, you know, a lot of people have dismissed over the years. And they've said, well, that just came from psychics. You really can't depend on that and you can't believe it. But I have a friend who is a Borden scholar who has uh, looked into this case uh, for a number of years. And, and to, be, to be fair, she's not a believer in the paranormal. Mm-hmm. She really doesn't believe in psychics all that much. And she was not somebody who felt like this you know, these tales of incest were true at all. But then she just happened to come into possession of some letters from other members of the family where, uh, you know, it was, there was members of the family that lived out in Swansea. And I believe it was the, the, the people that lived out there letters back and forth between them that reference this inappropriate relationship between Andrew and, and Lizzie. So here we have other members of the family in written form talking about what psychics were saying was true. But nobody had seen those letters until well after the psychics had, had come out with these stories. So, you know, there is that that little bit of... It, it could be true. And, and that could have some sort of factor into this one way or another, whether it be somebody who is being abused and is tired of being abused, or whether it's somebody who is in love with this person and doesn't want somebody else standing in the way. Yeah, I mean, we definitely came across that. that I mean, that's the theme that we read about, um, and I think we touched upon it briefly, but we didn't want to linger on it because, again, there's no proof, so we kind of just had to say up front, hey, this is a theme that a lot... And, and it's true, we did read, and we saw, we watched a couple episodes of different paranormal shows, and there's a lot of psychics and mediums, like you said, going in and getting that kind of vibe, I guess. Um 
I've never heard about maybe the arc of her it being reciprocated and her being in love with him. I'm, I'm, I haven't heard that. I, I also have never heard of these letters that were found, so I'd be very interested to see what those are about, letters from the family maybe mentioning or innuendoing to this. I Yeah, I didn't know about that. Yeah, I should reach out to her and see if she can if she's ever copied them or uh you know, if there's just any even a photo of them or something like that. Yeah, that would be that would be super interesting because I think all we have ever read is just theories of that or thoughts of that and there's been nothing to ever back it up at all. And and it's like what we talked about before where, you know, the the legend bleeds into the true story and we know this happening all the time because we go into the place and we go in there with people who have been researching it or or people who have looked up stuff online before they go and investigate it and they come in with all these stories and we have to kind of tell them like, well that's not actually true or that's just something that one psychic said that nobody's been able to verify. I mean, this is a case where so much of the the legend easily becomes part of the fact of the story without people realizing it and without realizing where this information came from. Yeah. I mean, the rhyme itself is wrong. Like the one thing mm-hmm. everyone knows about is wrong. So right. I mean, it's going to happen. What, one of the other stories, I mean, not to get too, too deep in the weeds with some of the stuff that we don't know is true or not, but you know, supposedly she had been pregnant numerous times and, uh, and, and Dr. Bowen from across the street came over and performed, Four. Uh, four times okay. and, and perform these abortions and there's uh, there's a cistern in the basement that's still there and supposedly that's where they dis- where they put the bodies of these aborted fetuses um, years and years ago so like we were right to the point where we were going to try and dig that up and look for mitochondrial DNA but Moniz didn't think that it would be he'd be able to extract any of that so we didn't go that far but you know these are some of the stories that have just kind of popped up and who's to say that that's i mean we were lucky that he at the time had access to a dna sequencer but what would happen if somebody just wanted to show up there and 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 try and do that maybe for a a television show you're going to invest you know thousands of dollars in this research over something that's just a story that people have been telling each other right yeah no i i don't think either i haven't heard about that no, me neither. Yeah, it's a, if you spend enough time there, you'll heal all these stories. Yeah. We'll, we'll tell you all the ones that we've heard uh, over the years. But So now we get to the we get, the, the point is here is we had a very dysfunctional Borden home leading up to August 4th, 1892. And so now, as you mentioned, you know, the, the morning of the murders comes. Uh, John Morris leaves. Emma is off in Fairhaven, where we are right now, visiting friends. Um, Lizzie's at home, but her story changes as to where she was and what she was doing. Uh, we know that Bridget was washing the windows on the outside of the building, on the outside of the home. Lizzie was supposedly in the barn. Eating pears. Sometimes she Three said pears. she was eating pears. Sometimes she said she was looking for sinkers to go fishing. Mm-hmm. You know, but there's, the, there's a, listen, it's possible that she was doing both. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... There's no reason to think that you couldn't eat pears and look for sinkers, right? Especially if you're out there for that amount of time. Uh, but what's funny too is, um, you know, a lot of people don't realize this. But if I remember the and Lolly will correct me if I'm wrong, but they didn't use the front door. They used the side door. So I that's think that for the most part they kept the front door locked like as much as they could. So I think if if it were them coming in and out like one of the family members 
I think, yeah, I think they would have just used the side door. So it's entirely possible for uh, for uh, Bridget to be on the other side of the building washing the windows, not seeing Mr. Boyden come home. But she also could totally not see Lizzie come in or go out to the barn, too. Yes, but I think one of the, well, as far as Bridget's testimony actually goes, she answered the door for Andrew Borden. She had to because it was locked and she had to unlock it. Um, so in her testimony specifically, she does say that she had to fumble with the locks as, as Andrew was, was coming home. But but there's still, in that time period, there's still the ability for somebody to get in and out of that door. Mm-hmm with Bridget being unaware and and certainly with Abby being unaware if she was sure, up in the guest sure. room or why were the windows shut anyways it was disgustingly hot outside well because they were closed so they could be cleaned exactly but why then I, that I don't know but uh, it was definitely the right time exactly for somebody to take advantage which they is were very dirty they had to be cleaned well <laughs> the, they got a little dirtier <laughs> but there so there's you know there's there's this opportunity for somebody to to sneak in and and commit these crimes so it could have it could have been lizzie that did it it also could have been anybody else that came in off the street uh and and there's been plenty of theories about you know illegitimate sons and other family members and other people that had an axe to grind and would have came in and i just got the reference that somebody made in the chat room a little while ago um because I was like, I just let it, I let it wash over me, and then I realized like they're talking about the chauffeur from the Houghton Mansion. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that at first. Yeah. But uh, anyway, but anybody could have come in off the street and and done that. Uh, so there's the possibility that somebody sneaks in, commits the murders, gets out without anybody being none the wiser. I, my question was always why it took so long. For somebody, because they, from what I understand, they came in because of the the call about Andrew Borden, and they came in and they found Andrew Borden. But it, it took a while before somebody went upstairs and found Abby Borden, right? Yeah, because Lizzie had told people that her stepmother had gone out to go visit somebody that she had gotten a note. So people just assumed that there was nobody else there except Bridget, Lizzie, and well, Andrew. Yeah, it, it it's. Just see, especially on a hot August day with the windows closed, you would think you would know about a body sooner than you would. But hey, I mean, yeah, you would think. I I wasn't there, so I don't I don't know. Uh, but that's you know that's where we're at. Where we have the now this becomes this crime scene where everybody's coming in. It wasn't just a matter of. Uh, you know, law enforcement coming in, like the whole neighborhood descended mm-hmm. upon this, all the yeah, pretty this much, crime scene. Yeah, all of Fall River. <laughs> so now you're dealing with, you know, a, a compromised crime scene to begin with. And then... And it was the auxiliary police that answered the call because the annual picnic was that day. So it took a while for... Oh, so again, you're saying it's a, the perfect day to commit this crime. Right. So there's, uh, you know, you, you're you're already putting what limited forensics they have in the time of the time uh, at risk by having everybody kind of trample in there. And now you're, you're bringing people in at a time when I'm sure Lizzie was the sympathetic daughter to most of those people at this time. 
I mean, oh, yeah. I, I can't imagine anybody in that room girl, was. Her parents just died. Are you kidding me? Yeah, no. <laughs> All right, now I see where Commander Sonny Cito is going with mm-hmm. that. But so now the 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 issue is, you know, you already are putting it. See, this is the reason why I think that the trial kind of went the way that it did, is because already nobody's thinking of her as being a suspect. They're thinking of her as being, you know, a victim of of being this 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 heartbroken daughter. Well, not only that, they're not used to dealing with murder, so and they're not used to trying murders, so this was a whole new thing for them. And and when you guys were putting together the episode and looking into it, like it, I guess I have to ask you, and I I know that I said at the beginning of this show that I said I don't really answer the question when people ask me, but I, I you know. I'm not a true crime host. You guys are a true crime host. So I have to ask you, how do you feel about, you know, with the information that we have and the way that things went, do you think that it was Lizzie Borden that did it? Okay. So you both have your own different opinions. Hold, hold on. We're getting a little bit too much echo there. Oh, are we good? Yep. That's better. Okay. Um, so what I was just saying, we do have our own opinions on this. Um, this is Katie. I, do you, listen, do I think there's enough evidence to convict anyone? No. But if we're just having fun and we're, you know, researching and we're saying what we think, I'm not sure, but I'm going to go on a limb and say, yes, I do think Lizzie did it. I mean, I think, I think there's so much that was going on in that house that we don't know about. First of all, like, I, I think... Maybe some of the speculative, abusive kind of stuff. I, I can see how that would be happening. I think there was a lot going on that we don't know about. Um, I, I think that it was Lizzie. I think other people probably knew about it. Um, I, I just, I have a really hard time buying the fact that somebody came in off the street and killed Andrew Borden and then waited around for another 15, 20 minutes and killed his wife and then just got out without anyone noticing. Like, I, I have a hard time believing that. I just think the most, the easiest answer is Lizzie, which makes me think, well, why wouldn't I just think it's Lizzie then? Um, but Kirby also has her own opinion, which I think is a little more far-fetched, but... Well, just to, just to take a step back there, I think you got it backward. Uh, okay. Mrs. Borden was killed first, then Andrew was killed. Oh, you are right. Sorry. Nope, no problem at all. But there was like a solid 20 minutes, half an hour between the kills, right? Yeah, I think it might have been over an hour. Over an hour. So a good amount of time. So what does a robber just come off the street, kill her, and just hide out for an hour? Like, I, it just doesn't make sense to me. And the house was big for its time, but it's also pretty small. I mean, I know they were off doing whatever they were doing, Lizzie and Bridget, but it just seems unlikely to me that somebody was hanging around for well, an hour unnoticed here's the thing yeah that unnoticed is the part i believe somebody could have killed her and then waited around an hour for andrew to mm-hmm. to do it but the problem is can he or he or she do that and not get discovered right. in that time with bridget maybe being in and out of the house and all that stuff that's that's where it gets a little bit in terms of somebody like showing up there looking to kill him doesn't find him there kills mrs borden and says i'm just going to lay here and wait totally plausible not really plausible to think that you would have, you know, that person be able to hide out. Although, 
I mean, it is possible. I know that, especially with having the two staircases, you could you could avoid somebody in that house if you wanted to. Yes. No, I agree. But then I would also think that there might be more physical evidence. I, I don't know. I mean, that's why I'm saying, like, there's just no way to know. I, I don't know. But my opinion is I, I think our, our girl did it. And, and Kirby's theory is more far-fetched than that? A, a little bit. She can she can lend her hand to that. So I think Lizzie definitely knew about it, whether she was involved physically or not. I believe that John was involved. Um, John, and, John Morse? You no, know, I think it was a double between John and Lizzie. And maybe, maybe other people were involved knowing or helping commit the act. But I do think it was more than one person's job. See, now you're, talking, but now you're talking about a conspiracy, and it's harder to keep a conspiracy <laughs> under wraps. It is, yeah. But, I mean, it's it's not the first time that somebody has speculated that they were working together or, or that Lizzie and, and Bridget were working together or even that Emma was in on it as well. I mean, there's there's certainly there's reason to think that it would have to happen that way for it to have mm-hmm. happened successfully. So it, it makes sense. And, right. you know, and some of the... And we're talking about something at kind of a rational level, too. We're looking at this from, you know, was Lizzie Borden a normal, rational, sane-thinking person? And that might not necessarily have been the case. Mm -hmm. Especially if you read, you know, the Victoria Lincoln book, A Private Disgrace, and you realize that she might have been what we would probably say now is being bipolar. uh, Certainly suffering from from some sort of depression. Uh, You know, if a lot of this is coming into play, that's part of it. And then the other part of it, and it's come up a little bit in the chat room here and there, but I I guess, I, I don't know if you would say mental illness ran in the family, but but murder kind of did. Because on that same property, mm-hmm. you know, one of, one of the Borden's relatives killed her own children and then herself. Yep. So you're dealing with something where you know, there's kind of a direct connection to there being a similar case in the family, so it's not that far-fetched to think it would happen uh, in, in this branch of the family as well. Now, then, that kind of takes some of the, the mental issues and the emotional issues into play as well. Stephanie and I have our own theories. We think that there's also some, I guess, paranormal, supernatural forces at work as well. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, certainly, there's certainly something there on that property that's dark, and negative and has probably been there longer than any of those murders took place and either caused them directly or at least kind of influenced the people uh, that did it because it's there and it, and it thrives off it. And we know because we've encountered it and we've had to deal with it for, for right. years now. Right. So that's kind of what you were talking about in the beginning of this whole uh, episode or meeting between us is that sometimes, the paranormal lends hand to the true crime. Sometimes the true crime lends hand to the paranormal. And I think that the Borden case is one in I mean, looking at some of the other things that you've talked about, I think, you know, the Freetown State Forest, you can separate the paranormal stories from the true crime that's happened there. Mm-hmm. And, and you can put that wall up if you so choose. And I think you can do that with Fort Tabor. And you can do that with some of these other, other cases that you talk about, Danvers and Salem and all these other things. You can put that wall up between them. But with the Lizzie Borden case, you can't put that wall up. Like, yeah. it's, it's just, it's too hard to say that 
there wasn't, I mean, you, you can say it wasn't paranormal, but you can say that there was definitely something else going on there. Something else in terms of, of mood, of, of atmosphere uh, that, was, that was taking place in that. And it's, 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 not, the, it's not the crime of, of passion that it seems like where something just set somebody off and, and, and it happened. It seemed like it was, it was a slow burn and a slow build to lead up to that point. Yeah, that's definitely something that we would uh, love to hear about over this beer that you guys are talking about. Oh yeah, no, that's that's going to happen. So, <laughs> and so now you've told us kind of how you feel about the murders and what might have happened. I do have to ask you: Did anything strange go on while you were staying there? <laughs> Another loaded question. <laughs> um, I mean, I'll, we'll speak individually again because we have our own individual and opinions. Um, again, I am more of a skeptic. Um, I was open-minded, and I will say that I did get some vibes, I guess, for lack of a better term, feelings, um, in some parts of the house. But personally, I did not experience any, I did not see anything. Um, I didn't hear anything. I didn't really have any, I don't know, evidence, for lack of a better word. I, I just, at some point, got some, some feelings. Um, I, didn't, I didn't see anything. And we did on our tours. Our tours, I did talk about a lot of the uh, more common experiences that people have with, like, the white fog or the black kind of fog mist stuff. Um, I didn't see any of that, but I think Kirby had a little bit more of an experience I, I think she can talk about. Yeah, so they used the jousting sticks at the very beginning, um, and what I found was the most interesting is our tour guide actually had some strong connections to the house. Um, she said that a lot of paranormal activity surrounds her just in general, um, so I've never used the dowsing sticks before. I've seen them on uh, videos before being used or not being used, um, but I never helped them personally. So I got to hold them, and then she had me ask a couple of questions, just like intro questions. Is anyone there? Is any spirits? Or, are, is anyone here? Um, and then they kind of moved a little bit for me. And then at this point, I'm thinking, okay, am I moving them? Are they moving them on their own? Like, you know, is my hand just shaking? But then as soon as she asked a question, she would ask the exact same question I asked. They just immediately moved. So they would cross over immediately. Um, and then that happened for a couple other questions. She'd have them straighten out. She'd move. And there were, like, questions that she asked that didn't really have answers that I would have known. Um, even subconsciously, I don't think I would have known them. Uh, well, I guess I wouldn't know because they'd be subconscious, but I don't think I would know them. And they still moved. They still moved pretty quick. And then towards the end, I'd asked a few questions, and they moved. Um, but that was my first experience, my only experience, actually, with the dowsing rods, or spirit rods, I guess. Uh, it, it, was, it was pretty crazy because they moved instantly when she asked those questions. So I will leave you with one final paranormal story. Uh, because it happened on the anniversary of the murders. And it's why I feel like there is definitely this 
this negative darker thing um so it calls conveniently it calls itself john although it's not john morris but it mm-hmm. refers to itself as john and it, and it hangs around in the basement and when i first started going to that house and investigating it i would hear stories from people especially some of the tour guides at the time who most of them aren't there anymore uh where they would say that there was a often a rotting smell that mm-hmm. would come from the basement which paranormal researchers will tell you is usually something that's demonic I don't use that term necessarily, but it's it's when there's bad things, you will get that kind of garbage, rotten meat smell. And so they would they would smell that. And I, I remember smelling it firsthand myself multiple times being in the basement and couldn't figure out what it was. It wasn't trash being kept down there or anything else like that. Um, but one night we stopped by. It was the anniversary of the murders. And Moniz and I were actually across town filming it at another, uh, doing an episode of Spooky South Coast from another haunted location. And so we stopped by on our way back just to say hi and to see what was going on. And there were some kids that were doing an investigation themselves, like high school kids that were walking around with a video camera and looking for ghosts. And so we went down into the basement with them. And while we were in there, we were filming and we saw this shadow person, the outline of a human being and, you know, blacker than the, the darkness behind it, just standing there staring at us in the basement. And we moved toward it, and it moved away from us, and we chased it, because you know how the base. I don't know if you went into the basement. I hope you did. Oh, we did. Okay, so the basement is like has those sections, and we would mm-hmm. chase it from... And back then, the basement was pretty much empty. They didn't have all that stuff down there. And we were chasing it from room to room, and it would stop and stare at us and almost like kind of try to goad us into going after it again. And then when we got close, it would take off again. And this went on for about 45 minutes of us, you know, chasing the shadow person. And uh, and that's not the last time that I saw shadow people there. And now almost every time I go there, we see one, especially uh, if you saw the episode of Haunted Towns that they filmed there, Porter had the same exact experience that I had had just mm-hmm. a month prior of standing in Andrew and Abby's room, looking into what was Abby's dressing room and is now just another part of that suite and seeing a person, a shadow figure standing there mm-hmm. uh, in that room. So there's they're there. And uh, it might just be the same John character, but uh, he's reached out to us from other places too, and we're at other investigations. And using our different equipment, he'll talk to us over that equipment, and uh, and remind us that he's still around and still watching us. And it's uh, it's very creepy. So sounds like it. Yeah, and uh, but it's it's also kind of uh, interesting and fun because you know you're talking about a case that is 127 years old tomorrow. At, well, 127 years old in five minutes. And that the fact that you can still reach out and touch directly to that history is what's the most fascinating about that. And a lot of these other cases that you cover on, on, on your podcast, you won't be able to do the same thing. You know, you won't be able to go to the scene of the crime and have it look like it did the day of the crime and be able to kind of reach back and touch into history. Yeah, no, you're, exactly. I mean, this is the only one we've, done yet that we have that kind of experience and i don't know how more often it can happen and i think that goes back to us just being like wow we kind of took this for granted that we live in in the same area as this this house and and not not to be morose but like we're literally 200 yards from where conrad roy killed Mm -hmm. himself really right now yeah Yeah. well that's where it's where our station is so we're like right across from the kmart parking lot so yeah. it's wow. uh well formally Kmart. Super but, sad. 
it's it's you can't help but step into some of these these areas right here and hey and hey i covered the patriots uh, you know i i i i guess you can say i knew aaron hernandez mm-hmm. uh but i never would have suspected he was he was i thought he was a dumbass i mean that was kind of my mm-hmm. that was my feeling about him i just thought he was a stupid person in my in my discussions with him i'm like this guy's just not bright Right. But I never would have thought that he would be a, a cold-blooded killer. Mm-hmm. So right. it but just showed, he? yeah. Well, no, he was. Yeah, I think so. Oh yeah, no, he definitely was. There's yeah, no one hundred percent. No doubt in my mind, he committed those murders. Agreed. But the the fact is, you know, we we live around all of this stuff, and it's mm-hmm. it's it's always around us. It's always ongoing. Which leads to my final question for you guys: What's on tap for the future of the Killer Babes podcast? Ooh, we don't. We can't give too much away, Kirby. I don't know. But there's more coming. <laughs> of course. Oh, there is. There's. Uh, I think we're looking. We did a lot of Massachusetts ones around here. I think we're really looking at Connecticut and a little bit of Maine um, for those stories. Yeah, I think we need to do some like more New Hampshire and Vermont. We've kind of been lacking on them a little bit more. Maybe it's because we're biased. Because we're from Massachusetts, but I think we need to branch out a little bit more to the New England outskirts, if you will. Well, and we're if definitely you- doing Salem again. Um, yeah, there's a couple places I definitely want to hit and do some tours, but. And if definitely you, Connecticut, if you want to cross over and do some of the, if you want to do some of the weirder stuff, just let us know. Oh, ah, oh my goodness! Yeah, definitely. definitely. Your, I need your help. In the paranormal, it's not the first time we've heard that. Well, we'll we'll also talk about that over beers too. Food (laughs) and food. Food. Yes, I'm hungry. Can you tell? (laughs) So, uh, well, let everybody know what's what's the best way for them to 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 follow along with the podcast and all of your adventures. Probably Instagram. Um, We post a lot of our updates on our Instagram, Killer Babes Podcast. Um, But other than that, they can find our podcast on all major players. And, and it's really easy to find, easy to download, easy to listen to, recommend it to everybody. And we will certainly have you on again in the future, and we'll have some adventures together. And uh, and we'll definitely have that. So. We'll have that food yeah. and beer, I promise. Yes, reach out oh, to us. Oh, we can't wait. All right. Well, thank you both for joining us, and uh, and have a great night, and, and good luck with the future of the podcast. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you for having us. Take care. And for everybody else out there, we're just about out of time. So uh, we are going to say goodnight to you as we hit midnight and we hit the 127th anniversary of the Borden murders. If anybody is out in the local area and you want to go and check stuff out, they are having reenactments at 92 Second Street throughout the day. They're also having a special presentation at the Fall River Historical Society as well. Uh, If you go to WBSM.com, there is a list of all the things that's going on uh, tomorrow that's board and related if you want to go and check it out. And, you know, if you're coming through the area, tomorrow's also the final day of the Feast of the Blessed Sacrament, so you can go and check out the parade. That's always everybody's favorite part of the feast. This candy. And you can go check that out. That's at 2 o'clock in New Bedford. So go check that out and then go head over to Fall River and experience some of the board and mania that goes on every year on August 4th. That does it for us for this week. If you want to reach out to us at any point during the week, you can do so via email. 
uh, spooky crew at spookysouthcoast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at spookysc. You can follow us on Instagram at spooky underscore South Coast. You can follow Stephanie on social media. You can follow me on social media. You can follow Matt Cost on social media. Moniz, you don't want to follow on social media. <laughs> Even if he accepts you, you're probably yeah. better off not following him because, uh, you know, yeah. So, <laughs> he's, right. He's uh, he's definitely uh, got his uh, stuff on lockdown. So, uh, but the rest of us are very accessible. So follow along with us and, uh, and all the discussion can keep going throughout the course of the week. But we'll be back next Saturday to talk more about the paranormal. So until then, for Matt, for Matt, for Stephanie, for intern Kylie, I'm Tim. We want you all to stay spooktacular. <laughs>